continuing this morning our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 26. And as you're turning there, let's go together to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> oh, gracious God, you've caused all of Scripture to be written for our learning, for our edification. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come to your word now, you would grant that we may hear and mark and learn, digest your holy word, so that we may be changed by your word, that we may hold fast to the glorious hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Dear Undugu, if you've seen the movie about Schmidt, you know exactly what that is. Starring Jack Nicholson, came out, gosh, what, 10 years ago now maybe? This guy works for an insurance company in Omaha, Nebraska his entire life, and he retires, and for some reason he just kind of feels on a whim. He, he decides to do a, a sponsor child, and like, like a lot of us did, a compassion child when we had Matthew Smith concert here three years ago. So, but if you'll allow me to kind of poke a little bit friendly way, unlike most of us, he actually writes his child. And so he writes a letter says, Dear Undugu. And he pours out his heart to this kid. And it becomes a running gag for the whole movie because every time something stressful happens, every time something he doesn't like happens, he has no one to talk to. So he whips out a piece of paper and in a huff, Dear Undugu. It's hilarious. I highly recommend that movie. It's called About Schmidt. And at the end of the movie, he's trying to figure out what, what his life has mattered, what everything accounts for, and it turns out the message of the movie is really depressing. Basically, he doesn't have anything in his life after a lifetime of work that he can really put his finger on and say, I made a difference. Except at the very end of the movie, he receives a letter back from a French nun at the orphanage where Ndugu is telling him how much Undugu has appreciated his letters and appreciated getting to know him and see what life is like and he has really made a difference in Undugu's life. And then it rolls credits. And you kind of feel really good but you're also like, man, that's really depressing, actually. That is right where Ecclesiastes has us this week. This struggle to make our life matter. This struggle under the sun to find meaning and purpose. If you remember where we've been so far, the author of Ecclesiastes, he calls himself kind of the philosopher pastor. He's doing it under the guise of kind of a picture of Solomon. It may be Solomon himself. It may be a different author using Solomon's life as an example. We don't really know. Either way, he's shown how he gives his life to excess, to wealth, and to anything his senses wanted and it didn't fulfill him. And so he re-examined his life with wisdom, trying to exert control over his life. And that only made him more frustrated because death is looming out there over everything. He, he laments that he sees no real evidence of God doing something noteworthy in his life. And so he assumes he'll be forgotten, meaningless. And so now he turns to look at work itself. If death ruins all his accomplishments, perhaps a life well lived and working well and making the world better, leaving something to the future, perhaps that can counteract the emptiness he feels. And so he turns to look at work. And so with that in mind, let's look together <clears throat> at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 
verses 18 through 26. This is God's Word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by a man or by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's Word. So we've seen so far that his seeking pleasure, his using all his resources to engage in every pleasure he could imagine, was trying to find freedom from his emptiness. And we saw last week that really using wisdom was actually just a way of trying to control his life, perhaps to get away from the frustration and emptiness. Even if he gains greatness, he finds out it will not last. His legacy is not guaranteed. Death destroys any attempt to find meaning, significance, purpose in this cursed world because it's subject to death. And so he's at this point, well, if we all die, maybe I can find it in work. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to give you a sentence to help you hang your hat on this, use this at perhaps family devotions later to remember what the sermon's about or a small group tonight. Here's what we're going to talk about today. The toil of life in a world of death leads to despair. But with God, there is joy in the journey. See, realizing that death frustrates all his work, this philosopher pastor falls into despair over how much he poured his life into his work until he remembers that God wants to bring us joy in that daily toil. So let's see if we can see that together. So first thing we're going to see here, he starts out with his frustration of toil under the sun. I love how he starts out very honestly in verse 18. I hated life. Now he hates his toil in verse 18. He said he hated life. Now he hates toil. Toil is a word that we could translate as labor. And just like in English, labor can mean working. It can mean what you do to bring a child into the world. It can be a concept like management versus labor. The Hebrew word carries all those connotations as well. It's the idea of toil, of effort, of doing something, of being something. It's what you give your life to is toil, he says, and he hates it. 
Now, this is deeper than, man, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, let's go, hating his job. This is a deep heartache at the work of a lifetime being meaningless because of death. That ha- fabulous lifestyle he had, that Hollywood celebrity lifestyle we saw a couple weeks ago where he had unlimited resources to do whatever he wanted, took a lot of work. And we know from the Solomon story and the other books that he was a very effective king. His, his life of labor, his life of toil was not easy. He had fruit to show for it. He got a lot of significance from his work. He gave his heart to what he accomplished. And it wasn't fulfilling. Now, maybe you're not there. Maybe you don't wrap your life around your possessions. or You, you, know, you work hard, sure. You provide for your own. You, you treat yourself occasionally. But on the whole, you're, you're pretty balanced. Maybe you're not even that mad. Or hating because death is going to make everything meaningless. And you think, Solomon, you're going a little crazy here. Calm down. So to talk to those of us who might not be that upset, he's now going to apply the meaninglessness of death. He's going to apply it to what happens to our stuff then. What happens to everything we've poured our life into? The fruit of our toil, what's going to become of it? What will happen? And he expresses a universal concern here. We have no control over how the next generation will use what we've labored a lifetime to produce. Maybe they'll use it wisely. Maybe not. What's really sad here is Solomon's probably looking at his own sons at this point. Maybe it with some regret for spending all his time seeking his own pleasure or trying to control his life with wisdom at the price of preparing them to lead Maybe he's not, I don't know. But the question is before all of us. We've all asked it. How will we know if what we have poured our life into will be used wisely by those who come after? Will they care as much as we do? We can't know that. Eventually, everything we've worked for will fall to someone else. And so if we've gotten significance from our work, there's that big hole there saying, yeah, so what? Okay, you work for this company, they give you the gold watch, then what? See, this is more than the regret of a workaholic. It'd be very easy for us to punt this back. Oh, that's for those guys who give their life to their work and have no balance. I'm balanced, I'm good. No, this is about a heartache to really matter in life. This is a question from his heart. Look more closely with me at verse 22. Look what he asks. He says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. See, here under the sun, how do we find purpose in life? How do we gain any, anything from all our work? That striving of heart phrase he uses there is, is a restless ambition to accomplish something. This is an intense, emotional, intellectual struggle. He's really struggling here. Here's how we translate it for the boys and girls. Maybe this will help us understand. He says this in their verse 22. What do we really get from all the trouble and stress of work in this life? You ever thought about that? You ever asked that question? What do we really get from all the trouble and stress? Now remember where Solomon was, or if you were here last week, remember back in verse 16, he, he was 
lamenting that he had no memorial, no remembrance over his life. And we said, if you remember, in the Old Testament, there's this habit of whenever God does something neat, he tells people to stop, make a pile of rocks, so that future generations, when they're walking by, they see the pile of rocks and say, hey, what's the pile of rocks about? And you can tell the story of what God has done. They call that a memorial. So what Solomon is saying is, I have no pile of rocks in my life. I haven't done anything that that people will say, wow, look what God did through this guy. He realizes for all his accomplishments, for all his wealth, for all his fame, he doesn't have a pile of rocks. He wants a pile of rocks. I may die, but I matter. There's my pile to show it. You ever felt that way? Now, in our language, we say my life is as valuable as a pile of rocks, right? It's nothing, but he wanted his pile of rocks. But I bet all of us have said, what difference did I make? If I drop dead tomorrow, who's going to care? In the big scheme, yeah, my family's going to want me. In the big scheme of things, no one's going to care. This pastor philosopher got everything he wanted, but he still wasn't happy. His life under the sun will have no lasting value, and it frustrates him to no end. In fact, in verse 23, he admits that a life of toil under the sun, a life lived without reference to God, when we say under the sun, it's what the New Testament would say, this world, meaning without understanding God, this world's full of affliction, it's full of pain, it's so much stress, he says it gives him insomnia. We can all relate to having stress-induced insomnia, right? This means yes, this means no. I mean, I don't know about you. Why, when we finally get through the day, we lay down, we're going to go to sleep, and all of a sudden it just all comes in and attacks at the same time, right? I mean, there's so many times I just want to sit up and go, y'all shut up so I can go to sleep, right? Solomon's a real guy, or this, this author was a real guy just like us. He's going through that. Again, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm sorry, I cannot relate to that. Maybe you're thinking, things are pretty good for me, actually. Well, praise the Lord. That is fantastic. Seriously, I'm not being sarcastic. Fantastic. Your neighbors are right here in Ecclesiastes. They're slogging it out with life under the sun. So for those of us who read passages like this, are like, I'm really not relating to this, that's great. Praise the Lord that He has delivered you from that. And then look around at your neighbors and see how harassed they are by sin. Let passages of Scripture like this give you compassion for your neighbors. Realize, wow, I'm not freaking out because I have Christ. They don't. Because there's so much frustration under the sun. But it's more than frustration. After kind of big overview, he zooms in and he really talks about despair under the sun. Look with me at verse 20. What he says, he says, I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. We would say in our language, I changed my mind. He says, I turned about. He says, you know what? I changed my mind. He stopped resisting. And he let himself be swallowed up by despair. Think about how he just said that. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Despair, he, 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 he says despair is right there. It's like this force trying to get in. And he has to actively be resisting despair all the time here under the sun. And he says, you know what? I am done resisting. I've turned about. I've changed. Whatever. Just come. I'm done fighting. 
he's so frustrated, he just says, you know what, forget it. If you've been really frustrated for a really long period of time, you've been here, haven't you? You're just kind of, you know what, I'm done. I'm so sick and tired of this. And you just let the despair and the hopelessness wash over you and you have a nice little pity party. But it's more deep, it's deeper than that. As many of you know, I was, uh, before, uh, before I was here in St. Louis, part of my job at that church was to uh, be uh, a chaplain for the fire department. And I was also a volunteer firefighter. But as a chaplain, the department there asked me to go to, and I said, sure. I went to a uh, Homeland Security uh, training course about suicide prevention because the suicide numbers for firefighters would scare you if I shared them with you. It's, it's, even to this day, it's a very suicide-intensive uh, service. And so this is sponsored by Homeland Security. As you can imagine, there's no religious connotations whatsoever, right? There's no quoting Scripture, none of that stuff. It was all a psychological-based training. It was very good, but there was this wonderful moment where I was like, Lord, you're so amazing. Your common grace is everywhere, and even people who have to deny you, they can't help but admit you're there. I'm not exactly quoting because I'm not allowed to quote from these notebooks, but this is the gist of one of the things they taught us was this. They said, basically, darkness and junk are out there. First responders, that's police officers, firefighters, paramedics, they encounter that junk and that darkness as a matter of routine, and so they must fight to maintain positive emotional health in the face of that onslaught of darkness. Does this sound familiar yet? So... And they said, here's a key indicator of emotional health. You want your guys and gals to be conflicted. You want them to have angst about what they see and to be struggling with it. And a key indicator is if all of a sudden someone is at peace and they've reconciled themselves to it and they're really okay with the junk they see every day, that's a key indicator that they have made a suicide decision. You need to intervene at that moment. You need to not let that person be alone. You need to talk to them right then and there. Now, that may be a little bit extreme for some of you. I know. Not only is exactly what Solomon says, but isn't it profound that it's that clear? Again, maybe that's a little extreme for you. Most people, though, they seek therapy. They seek some sort of counseling or just help from a friend because of that conflict with despair, right? Despair is ready to overtake our hearts at a moment's notice. And so, I mean, I can feel that. Can you? I, mean, I can feel that despair is right there. And if I let myself, the problems of the world, the problems of family, the problems of church would just overwhelm if I didn't actively resist by the power of grace. And maybe, again, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Your neighbors get that. Your neighbors are in the battle against despair. And so what do people do? They flee to some sort of help to take care of this conflict because they assume, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't feel so conflicted. There's another great Jack Nicholson movie. It's called As Good As It Gets. He plays this major OCD guy who's having some major OCD problems and in a fit of rage he storms into his psychiatrist's office interrupts someone else's appointment, just has this huge yelling match, and his psychiatrist knows how to deal with an OCD person, so gets him out. He walks, everybody hears him yelling. He walks out to the, a full waiting room of patients waiting to see the psychiatrist. He kind of just stops and just asks out loud to the room, have you ever wondered if this is as good as it gets? And you can tell by the body language in the room, people are like, oh, no. And he just huffs out. 
See, the movie at that point wants you to recognize, oh, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be fighting against this despair. Sometimes you've got to just rest in it and accept it. That's what Ecclesiastes is. There's this conflict out there, and he is trying so hard to resist it under the sun, saying, the world should be different. I'm going to resist and resist. It should be better. And part of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is, you know, actually under the sun, this is as good as it gets for now. Now, some of you are bothered that a pastor would admit, as I did a few minutes ago, to struggling with despair. Because Christians, especially pastors, are supposed to be happy, happy. Have no struggles. Jesus makes us perfect, right? No struggles allowed. And that's churchianity. That's not the gospel. Christians are forgiven and accepted by grace, but we still live under the sun in a world of junk. We are, if you'll allow me to make the analogy, we are God's first responders to a world of darkness. We are supposed to be conflicted in our struggles daily with the junk and darkness out there because those struggles drive us back to Jesus for more grace instead of looking to our efforts and our works. Oh, I got this. I can handle this. No, I cannot handle this. I need help. So if you find yourself conflicted, if you find yourself, why don't I have this much peace? Why does stuff bother me so much? Instead of letting guilt paralyze you, Take that to God and say, Lord, would you help me with this? Because this world just messes me up. See, we all have these intense longings for permanence, an intense desire to make our mark, to do something that will endure. And yet under the sun, Ecclesiastes tells us we're going to spend our whole lives working for something we can't keep. And that often leads to despair. I mean, think about Solomon. Solomon was gifted with wisdom. And he's looking at his sons who aren't. Solomon was second generation wealthy. David was the dynasty founder. Solomon was the nation builder. And the third generation? Well, have you heard that adage, rags to rags in three generations, right? Because usually the first generation is the entrepreneurial type. The second generation gets to have the benefits of the entrepreneurial type and they don't really get it. And the third generation is just a bunch of spoiled brats and ruins it all, right? That's typically how it works. And Solomon is going, is that going to happen here? And he didn't know, but we do. Yes, it did. His son, when he took over king, like in the first week, split the kingdom and lost 80% of the nation. How's that for a bad first week on the job, right? But we know such things happen. What is the point of working so hard in your life only to lose control? It's enough to cause despair. Again, maybe you don't know how to relate to that, so let's try this. Older folks in the room especially, are you concerned about the future of America? Do you remember the national pride and, quote, normal morality of your younger days, but now you barely recognize your country? It would be very easy to fall into hopelessness, to wonder if everything your generation has achieved has been for nothing because the America you knew is gone and it's not coming back. What do you do? Or maybe you caught the news of the religious study released this week. And the major news outlets were almost gleeful. I swear, several times they had put fireworks behind it. Like, our century-long experiment with secularism is finally working. Christians are declining. But don't despair. It's not. 
Look at the data. It's out there. You can Google it yourself. Look at the actual data. It's the churches that abandoned the gospel decades ago that are continuing their decline. Actually, as a percentage of the population, evangelicals have held their own, which means if the population has gotten bigger and our percentage has stayed the same, we've gotten bigger, right? The exact opposite of what everybody's rejoicing about. They're trying to explain it away. It's okay. There's a hilarious article in the New York Times by Jonathan Merritt who just hates the church doing his best to tell you that two plus two does not equal four no it equals three because it's hilarious he he cannot admit evangelicalism is growing you know why evangelicals aren't shrinking because in a real world with real frustrations like Ecclesiastes talks about with real questions about death and life and purpose, only the gospel has answers. And the churches that are presenting the gospel are growing, and the churches that are presenting something else are not. Praise God. Don't despair. That's great news. Because see, in a life of toil under the sun, It leads you to despair if all you have to think about is under the sun reality. But the gospel of Jesus Christ promises us that God comes alongside and brings joy in that journey, which is right where Ecclesiastes wraps up with joy of toil under the sun. Everybody look with me at verses 24 and 25. He says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, there's a big change here in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. For two chapters, we've been talking about life under the sun. Now he turns and says, but let's consider life under God, shall we? There's a wonderful anecdote. I've tried to find a primary source. I can't, so let's just say it's an anecdote. I don't know if he actually said it. Martin Luther supposedly was asked, Brother Martin, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do today differently? He stopped and he thought and he said, I would plant a tree. I'm just going to let that hang there for a second. It's like, what? Because that's exactly what Ecclesiastes says here. Shackled with the reality of death, showing us how death destroys everything that we could possibly leave as an earthly legacy, he now tells us, you know what? Since death is coming, plant a tree. Enjoy your life. Walk with God in the average daily stuff. Face it with the reality of death, in other words. We cry out, where is God? And Ecclesiastes answers, God is under the sun with you in your daily life. But we miss it. I guess this is movie day. Another movie I want you to think about, a scene from The Incredibles. Okay, love The Incredibles. I just, I need to know, who has seen The Incredibles in here? Come on, this is a great movie. Hey, good, lots of you. You know there's an Incredibles 2 coming out. It's official this week. Oh, yes. I know, right? So, the Incredibles. These are all former superheroes, and because lawyers got involved, they got sued, and so the government put them underground on like a witness protection program. So all the, all the heroes are in hiding, in the, and they're incognito. And here it is 15 years later, and the big, bad Mr. Incredible who can do anything is fat, very extremely fat guy sitting in a cubicle selling insurance. Hates his job. He comes home. 
He's so distraught from missing the glory days that he just is a checking out as a dad. He doesn't engage his kids. He doesn't engage his family. He's just not there. And in the middle of a fight with his wife, she just screams out, because your life is right here and you're missing it. See, and that is what the grace of God whispers to the heart of Solomon in this moment. Your life is right here and you're missing it. Instead of despair over the future, walk with God in the present. Have joy where you are. See, a person is happy in their heart when they find enjoyment where they are. I'll say that again. A person is happy in their heart when they find enjoyment where they are. That sounds so good. And that is the meanest, most frustrating, despair-causing thing I could ever tell you. Because it is impossible to walk with joy daily without the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are too thirsty for meaning. We make idols out of the gifts of God so much that we never walk with joy because we're too busy trying to suck joy from these things that we can't enjoy them. Until Jesus comes and sets us free for those gifts, we can't enjoy those gifts That's why he rants about the exact same gifts in verses 18 through 23. And then he turns around and says, but under God, now you can enjoy them. So don't sit there and say, yes, I'm just going to walk with joy. No, you place your faith and trust in Jesus to set you free from trying to squeeze joy out of life. He gives you joy. And you're like, oh, wow, look at this. This is also fun. Don't ever let this thing make you sound like, okay, I just got to calm down and have joy. I don't even know what muscle to squeeze to do that, right? So don't do that. You place your faith and trust in Christ. He sets you free to have joy. See, the gift of God in Jesus Christ of deep joy is available to you today. Enjoyment in our life, even in a cursed world, God wants to give you that. He wants to give you joy. Boys and girls, did you think I forgot about you? I hadn't forgotten about you. Let's pull out your bulletins. I want to look at your verse 24 together. And your verse 25 in a second. But let's look together at your verse 24. Here's what Solomon says. The best thing for us is to have joy in our daily life. Especially our work. God wants to give us that joy as a gift. Boys and girls, do you think God wants you to be happy? As a child, I didn't believe that about God. And I struggle to believe that today about God. But He does. He wants us to be happy. He even tells us how. Let's look again at your verse 25 together. He says this, We must look past this life. Because who can be happy without God? You see, boys and girls, when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, He brings us joy. God can make you happy through Jesus, boys and girls. He really can. You see, when we walk with God, when we rest in His acceptance in the Gospel, when we rest in His grace that He has given us, when the Gospel is our anchor in our daily life of toil and frustration, it gives us joy. It gives us contentment. 
When we try to anchor our lives in our job, what I do defines me, we don't have joy. When we try to anchor our lives in what I possess defines me, you don't have joy. What I can do with my possessions, my house, my status, whatever it is that we try to make, this is where meaning is. We don't have joy. We, we end up destroying it. But when He comes and sets us free and says, you have significance and worth and purpose in my love. Now go to work. Now enjoy your things. We find joy in that freedom. You can have contentment and joy. Can I just tell you right now that joy and contentment mess up our culture? Have you noticed the social pressure not to have joy? Not to be content? I mean, think about it. If you're in line at Walmart and you want to start a conversation with a stranger, isn't it easier? Don't you kind of feel yourself tempted to say something negative? Like, can you believe it's happening? Complain about something, right? And they'll kick in right away, right? Whereas if you say something, man, isn't it a great day today? Half the time they'll be like, hey, people of Walmart, you know, right? Isn't that weird? You want to have interesting conversations? Live with joy and contentment. People notice. They may think you're ignorant. They may think you're naive. But be joyful and content anyway. It'll make a difference. Because people crave joy. They will want to know how you've got some and where they can. So let's wrap this up. How does, how does this text itself wrap up? Look at me at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. See, notice what God gives here. God himself gives wisdom. God gives knowledge. God gives joy. See, back in verse 21, it was frustrating knowing that others would get joy out of our stuff. But here, God gives joy. And he gives it to those who please him. Isn't that an amazing thought? And then in this weird verse, notice what it says? It says he's actually going to take all the stuff, the toil of the sinners, and he's going to give it to us as well. You confused yet? A little weird, I know. Let's look together at the kids, verse 26. Maybe we can make some sense of this. Here's how we translate it for them. God gives His people joy in their work, but to sinners He gives the job of gathering blessings for His people to have. That frustrates sinners, like trying to catch wind in their hands. Still confused? Maybe I can make it a little bit more simple for you. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, the meek, those who please God, don't have to toil. They get it all as a gift from their loving Father. You see that? He promises here in verse 26, I'm going to take the stuff of sinners. They're going to be gathering all this. I'll give you joy now, and then I'll give you their stuff then. Jesus says the exact same thing. Blessed are the meek, for you're going to inherit it all. So the logical question at this point is, how do we please God, right? Let's get us some verse 26. This is the most important question for you today. This answer determines if you will find contentment or joy or if you will walk out of here in despair and continued frustration. 
So I'm going to ask again, how do we please God? How'd you answer? If you're from a church background, or all you know of Christianity is from TV, perhaps your answer was probably some sort of religious behavior, some sort of moral performance, some sort of maybe even to be, to be oversimplified, vote a certain way, dress a certain way, talk a certain way. Don't do anything fun. Maybe you have, that, that's not what you looked at, but most of us probably in some way, in answer to the question, how do we please God? Most of us probably looked to our own actions. I have to do blank. Our own work. Our own toil. Toiling to earn God's pleasure leads to frustration and despair. If that's what you're thinking, I know, I know exactly what you, what you thought. It went through my mind too. Great. I've got to please God now. Okay, so I've got to cast off one master, this world, finding enjoyment here. Now I've got to go to a different one and say, okay, God, I will toil to make you happy. That doesn't sound very fun. If you're thinking that, by the way, I have great news for you. You were so wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. Because that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. The message of grace, the gospel, is that God does demand perfection. Absolutely. Perfection pleases a holy God. And here's what's amazing. Jesus Christ toiled and labored to be perfect for sinners like me and like you. Jesus toiled to obey God's law His entire life. He strove to be faithful to the end. And His work earned our salvation. His ordinary life of faith made Him the most righteous person ever. And He gives us that righteousness as a gift. So how do you please God? You can't. But you can place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who did. He did please God. And in Him, God will change you. He will forgive you. He will make you righteous. In Jesus, God will adopt you. He will say to you, Dear child, I am pleased with you. I'm going to say that again because if you're like me, part of your heart said, whatever, no, not me. In Jesus Christ, when you've placed your faith and trust in Him, He will adopt you into His family. He will present you to His Father in a way that says, My dad is so cool, and He can become your dad. Let's go meet Him. And you will meet your Heavenly Father, and He will say, Dear child, I am pleased with you because of the work of Jesus Christ. Oh, for Christians out there, you're hearing this. Don't let that part of your heart rise up and deny that. Embrace that. Bathe in that truth. Because the frustrations of life under the sun will be made up by life in the Son of God. He will make us whole one day. He will give us the whole earth one day. But for today, He gives us resources to deal with life. God will bring you joy where you are through Jesus Christ. Oh, dear flock, hear that and then recognize how much our community is starving for that message. Because that kind of joy is how we will change Orangeburg. Recognizing that this world of death leads so many to despair, 
we have hope because God is with us in our daily lives and we can give that hope to our community. This is so earthy. It's so practical, but we forget it because we're so used to hearing it. So one more quick thing and we're done. One of the first things Jesus did after his resurrection, if you know the stories, is he shows up on the beach with his friends. He cooks them a quick meal and they eat together by the sea. Remember that? I mean, death is still waiting for all of them except him. The world still needs saving. Worldwide Christianity movement consists of 11 people at that moment. Life under the sun is still there. And Jesus does not model or counsel for them escape from this world. Instead, he engaged them right there, had a meal, had fellowship together. He said, we engage the world under the sun with hope. And he sent them out. We fight the culture of death by having joy in the world with Jesus, not by trying to escape the world for Jesus. So as those who have hope, as those who have joy, as those who are pleasing to God because of the work of Jesus Christ alone, go out and show that hope to your neighbors. Because they are fighting back desperately against that despair and they need help. We can give them the hope of the gospel. Let's bless our community with this hope and this joy because they need it. And let's pray together. Oh, gracious God in heaven.